Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey, what's up? Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited. We're so close to episode 50, which feels like such a gigantic milestone to me. And I've done something that I think is quite cool for episode 50. And some of you know because you've asked me and I'm really crap at keeping secrets. Um, so some of you know who's coming on for episode 50. And yeah, I'm excited about it. It's not just for that reason, just because it is such a milestone to have done 50 episodes. But I will make an agreement with you now. If you finally, because I've been doing this for a little while now and it's going so well, if you finally hurry up and book a session with me, uh, book a coaching call, which has helped so many people. I mean, I've completely forgot to grab a review, but there are so many reviews in the podcast discussion group on Facebook. If you haven't joined that, then just join that. There's loads of them. Um, there's loads of, you know, good reviews. So, you know, this stuff works. I mean, I know that a lot of people say, you know, can you teach people to train dogs through Skype? Can you, you know, cover these things? And they're a bit nervous about that element. Um, but the answer is yes. As Chris pointed out today, actually, um, where he was making a kind of insider joke in the group um, about the fact that I showed him how to um, train loose leash with my fake stooge dog and the webcam, which was quite entertaining and quite funny. And some of you that have done the, um, coaching calls, I've, I've done that with a few of you. Um, and it's worked well, as you can tell by Chris's review. You know, he's out there getting results with, with his dog. Anyway, so if you book a session, if you finally jump on, um, jump on and and get something booked in then i'll tell you you can be in the insider group i'll tell you who uh who's going to be on episode 50 so you can do that by booking a session at www.nickbenger.com slash book really simple anyway so it's been a little while you know since i put a podcast out i've been feeling very guilty but i just want to kind of explain that quickly so last week um i was I was just feeling crap pretty much the whole week. You know, I've, I've been pretty ill anyway and just not feeling 100%. So I picked up some medication in the supermarket, didn't really think much about it. Um, took a tablet and within about two hours, I was just trembling. And I said to Livy, you know, like, because I've seen bad reactions to medication and I've seen people almost die from having bad reactions to medication. So, you know, I, I'm a little bit aware of that. So um, I said to Livy, like, you know, this is making me tremble. I'm just letting you know in case something happens. And then I, I woke up at, I don't even know what the time was, but it was early in the morning, you know, maybe like 2, 3 a.m. And, um, and, and I went to the bathroom and it's quite a funny story. So I went to the bathroom and I went to get a glass of water and just fainted. Just fainted, fell in the bathtub, um, woke up. I woke up and uh, I unlocked the bathroom door because I just lock it out of habit. You know, I don't even think about it. I just lock it. And I unlocked the bathroom door. That was pretty much the first thing I did because I thought if I faint again, and I want to make sure that Livy can get in here and um, rescue me, essentially. Um, anyway, I kind of stayed in there for a few minutes, gathered my thoughts, and I went back to the bedroom and I said, Livy, I just fainted like you know, I've never fainted before, this is really strange, I just fainted, I fell in the bath, smashed my head on the bathroom wall, wasn't bleeding or anything, but still painful, and um, she was like, oh, I, I heard a bang, um, but I thought you'd just fallen over or something, and I was just like, oh my god, you know, I fainted, I could have been seriously hurt, and here you were, just sitting in the the bedroom, she said that because she heard the door what she thought was lock, um, she thought, oh, he's all right. He's, he's locked the door, so he's fine. So anyway, so there was that. So that was um, dramatic, but I'm fine now. Back back to good health. Um, just got back from Sunderland, um, the Impact event, which I've been advertising on the podcast. You know, you will have heard me talk about quite a lot, which I was super excited about because I've been to um, Dom's event 
I went to his first one a couple of years ago, and that was really fun. Um, and then been doing the advertising for Dom on on the podcast, and went to the this most uh, recent event, Impact Business Summit. And it's just, you know to see it evolve, you know, because Dom's pretty much a friend now. To see to see it evolve to where he's at, you know, to see. I, it's hard to put into words, you know, just to see like him come on and, and, you know, both himself and the group that he's built, like the group of just really committed pet professionals that want to improve their businesses. It's just so awesome, you know, to see Alex as well, Alex Warder, who's been on the podcast too, you know, to see him speaking. And, you know, because when I've, when I went to the first event, you know, Alex was the guy that was behind the camera, you know, now he's, giving a giving talks on video marketing he's wrote a book you know to see his progression as well so just to just to go there and, and be among friends and, and talk business in itself was freaking awesome but i came away with like i haven't counted them up but i've literally got at least 25 points which um are things that i need to do to improve my own business to start making more money just have a better business. It wasn't even just all about money. You know, we were talking about personal issues, spending more time with your family, all of that kind of stuff. It was just so incredibly valuable. And, um, you know, I recommended it before. I recommend it even more now. It's just got so, so good. It's um, really worth checking out. And and I know that everyone that went there certainly felt that. Um, and that would be reflected in the testimonials, I'm sure. You can get an early bird ticket for that at www.growyourpetbusinessfast.com slash impact 2020. Anyway, that's a much larger rant than I normally have. Um, today I'm talking to Brenda Aloff. Brenda has trained dogs for over 20 years. She's published five books on dogs, including Canine Body Language, Interpreting the Native Language of the Domestic Dog, which is exactly what we're talking about today. So let's get into it well hey brenda welcome to the show well nick it is so lovely to be here i can't tell you how excited i was when i got your email well i'm so glad i'm so glad to be uh doing this with you because i think that it's such a fascinating to topic and i haven't really heard anyone do a podcast on it before so i'm really excited about this well yeah this is gonna be fun it's one of my favorite soapboxes <laughs> well, i think uh i think people really believe they know what their dog is saying uh -huh. and in certain contexts they might but every time i talk to people about their dog's body language they often mistake things like excitement um, which I would read it as anxiety. Right. Um, you know, that that's, seems like a very subtle difference. But if you think your dog is anxious rather than excited, you might make some really different training decisions on that. Yeah, absolutely. I can't say how many times I've seen clients that misattribute their dog's behavior to something else. And, and maybe there is a yep. underlying anxiety or frustration or something. Yep. That they're not recognizing. And I don't think it's just anthropomorphization, right? It's also what they want to see. Right. Well, I want to get into the deep subject of dog body language because I feel like there's a huge rabbit hole to go down there. But before we kind of get into all that kind of stuff, maybe a good starting place. Well, one thing I wanted to bring up is when I was reading more about you, I felt like we had such similar stories. You know, I came from a background of having a... It was actually a puppy Labrador and everything just going wrong, right? And, and, and <laughs> those are the dogs that teach us. <laughs> those are the dogs they? that make dog trainers, uh, is what I found. <laughs> yes, I say, I always say those fox terriers, they taught me so many things I never wanted to know. Uh, but it stood me in good stead. And what it did allow me to do, I think, was to be able to help others. It put me in a good position to help other people. And, Let's face it, dog training is not something we're going to make millions of dollars at, probably. Mm -hmm. So we really need to have passion as our guiding light because it's not going to be money. Mm -hmm. Were you a crossover trainer as well? 
Yeah, I come from a horse training background more, and I was never a pro horse trainer, but I worked for pros when I was younger. Um, I rode the Class A circuit over here. Not hunters. I get a nosebleed going over ground poles. I'm a real chicken that way. Um, but I did a lot of – I rode my entire childhood, and I really didn't get into dogs until I um, – I always had a dog, right? My dad had a hunting kennel. Um, he liked to hunt, so he had upland game dogs and hounds. And um, so I was always around dogs and always had dogs. But I didn't really get into dogs until uh, my my child was about two, three, because it was really getting hard to take her to dog to horse shows. Those horse shows aren't set up for little kids to be around. You know, it's a lot of big, moving, dangerous animals and distracted people who are competing. And uh, she was no longer little and cute, so all the trainers' wives would fight to hold her when she was an infant. But you know, as soon as they're toddling and smart mouths and stuff, nobody wants to watch uh-huh. them. So um, uh, that's when I really got into dogs. And what kind of it was a lot of fun because when. Oops, what I'm kind sorry. of problems were you Go having at, uh, at these horse shows with your dog? Oh no, with my dog. Oh, I thought you said sorry, my, my mistake. Ch- my child. Okay. <laughs> my kid. A human. A human baby. Oh, okay. Well, we don't talk about those often on this show. <laughs> we don't. We don't. That's really funny. I love it. <laughs> Are you blushing? <laughs> my mistake. Yeah, so my child, no, I had this dog that I would take her to uh-huh. dog shows. This is her training. Are you ready? I would take her to a dog show, and I'd put a blanket outside my horse's stall, and I'd park her on it, and I'd be like, you stay here. I have to go. This was the whole training program, and I'd get on my horse, and I'd go ride in my class, and most people knew me at these shows, and so if my dog decided she'd been too long, she'd go straight up to the announcer's booth, and they would feed her treats and patter until I was done. And they would say, Brenda, your dog's. I'd be riding in a class, and I'd, Brenda, your dog is here. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so your dogs were. That didn't really prepare me for dog your, training in any, in any way. Your dogs were having a great time then. So, so what was it that kind of motivated you to kind of learn more about dog training then? Because it sounds like everything was going so well. Yeah. Well, you know, um, as my daughter, as I say, was getting older and. Um, I had some other life changes. I remarried, you, you know, that how that stuff can get in the way of your life. And so what I had left were these aging show horses, and I wasn't riding very much, and I was raising my kid, but I really missed animals. And I'd always wanted a really spiffy-looking smooth fox terrier. I just – I loved the pictures of them, right? Just like every other idiot that goes and gets a dog. <laughs> and, and so I'm like, I just want one of those, so – my new husband said, you should go get one. So what I did was got bloody awful lucky because I found a great fox terrier breeder. And she was very good to me. So she hands me this six-month-old terrier. She'd been showing it. Um, but it was, as, as Janet said, she keeps trying to kill her mother. So I really need to rehome her. Well, there was red flag number one, right? right? Uh, so... Uh, and she just said to me, you know, you'll need you'll need to train them firmly and early. And I'm like, okay, I'm thinking, hell, I've had dogs all my life. I know what I'm doing, uh-huh. right? Just like every other idiot that gets a dog. And I got her home and I thought, this isn't a dog. I've had dogs my whole life and they were nothing like this. Um, she was uh, she was a very primitive animal and funny um, a, a hoot to be around, loving with my family, but really, really predacious. And I learned a lot about what is important to dogs, if they'll talk to us about it, or if we'll listen to what they have to say, and what it means to be a really predatory animal. Um, and, you know, those dogs are genetically set up to be a certain way, and she was an extreme example of what they are genetically set up to be. And I just loved her so much. But I started taking her around to these quote unquote professional dog trainers or people that were experts in, in my eyes. And, you know, they're having me slap a pinch collar on her and correct her. And coming from a horse training background, that just felt strange. We kind of don't, I don't walk up to 1200 pounds and immediately start jerking it around, right? Because if it, if it, 
takes offense to that, you're going to get hurt. Um, so, but I'm listening to these experts. Well, by the end of the first class, I now had a dog that wasn't just predaceous to squirrels and things. She was dog aggressive now uh, because when she looked at another dog, I was told to correct her. And I was trying to be a good student. And we look back on those sorts of experiences and it's just devastating, right? Like I'm going to start to cry as we talk about it because, oh, you just feel so guilty. And you don't feel guilty just about what you did to the dog, but you feel guilty about not listening to your own sort of instincts about it. Uh, but in your desperation, you're ready to listen to somebody that you think knows more than you. So as professionals, we have a very big responsibility to present ourselves as we are to our clients and let them know what our experience level is. And if they need something other than my experience level, then I would try to help them find that. Mostly I'm getting referred by other trainers um, and sometimes uh Pet behaviors at some of the universities occasionally refer to me as well if they have a client in my area that needs follow-up or whatever. Was, uh, it, but, was, was there a particular moment that you realized that the pinch collars and this kind of aversive training was wrong? Yeah, well, it was one day I went to get her a collar to take her for a walk, and it was a, 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 a choke collar, a slip collar. And she ran up to me and she's all excited. And as soon as I took that collar off the hook, she looked at me and she ran away. And I sat right down on the floor and sobbed because this is not what it was supposed to be like. And clearly the dog didn't hate me, but that was a defining moment. And I, when I, when I was able to stop, you know, sort of pull myself together. I looked at the pinch collar and I, or the, the slip collar and I just did some very nasty things to it and I threw it in the trash. And I thought, I'm going to stop going to these classes. I'm going to stop doing this stuff and I'm going to figure something else out. I need to, no matter how much these people say they're experts, this isn't, whatever it is, it's uh -huh. not working for me and for her. Yeah, that sounds heartbreaking. And, yeah. So it was, well, it was for me. It was just, uh, so I went to the library and I found a book in the psych section. I go to the dog training session and it was all the same of what I was doing. So I'm like, well, okay, there's no help there. And I, I went to the psych section and I thought maybe I can just learn about how they train circus animals or something, you know, something. I'm just thinking how something about animal training. That's so innovative in itself, uh, though. Like that, maybe that's why you've been so successful because that is like, a, it takes a certain type of person to see that a whole industry is doing one thing and as a beginner and then go out and almost be disruptive or look for something else somewhere, you know, it, you it break the rules essentially. Um, no, I, yeah, that's really interesting. Well, thank you. I, that's very sweet of you to say, I never felt like I was breaking a rule. I just felt really desperate. I felt like I really loved this dog and I wanted to make it right between us and it mattered to me to do that, um, at least so that I was satisfied, if if not her. And um, so I did, I found a book on the shelf and it was called Don't Shoot the Dog in the Psych Section. And of course it said dog and I'm like, great. And of course I open it up and it's really not about dog training. <laughs> That's just the name of the book. But you know what? It gave me a start in positive reinforcement and then... I was the clicker queen, man. <laughs> I got into that like nobody's business. Well, one one thing that people don't realize about Karen Pryor's book is it was originally intended as a self-help book, right? Right, absolutely. It wasn't even a dog. Yep. It wasn't intended to be a dog it's training book. It's not a dog training book. No. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you this. So one of the things that I came across on your site was you were talking about how you feel that an understanding of dog behavior is really key in fixing dog homelessness, right? Like dogs that just end up in these rescue centers and kind of get stuck there. Can, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Hmm. So probably you at least have noticed that dogs don't speak in sentences. 
They, it's not just that they don't have the tongue for it to, to speak in sentences in the way that we do and talk about abstract things. Uh, they don't have the brain for it. Uh-huh. Therefore, what we must realize is that they'll, they'll never be able to speak to us in that way. I think the second thing is dogs are looking fr- fr- to us, and what they're looking for is body language. And instead, what we give them is blah, 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 blah. And therefore, right off the bat, dogs are placed in an immersion situation where they have to understand human language really fast. And humans can sort of get away with never really understanding what the dog wants, actually. And dogs are just trying to get some basic needs met. Whatever, whatever that dog needs. Um, so, you know, what, let, let's assume we're past Maslow's hierarchy, right? We're, we're past the, the basic part of Maslow anyway, which is, you know, you gotta be fed, pottied, and reasonably physically comfortable. So what do, what do dogs need beyond that from a human? Well, some dogs need tremendous amounts of exercise. And if don't, if they, if they don't get that exercise, then, then they will act out. Um, most dogs, many dogs, are afraid of being touched. They don't. They don't necessarily. Uh, as a human, I feel like what our culture does is we say, "Oh my gosh, I'm going to go hug that dog and kiss him on the head," and he'll have a great appreciation for that because he knows then that I love him. Uh, that's kind of an extreme example, but it, it's really how people think when you talk to them. And yet, the reality of that is not even close is it you know dogs that don't know you don't necessarily want you to touch them at all dogs um want to learn about what how that person moves what that person's intentions are um and then they have to try to match our body language up with those things and then they have to try to further extrapolate that into getting their own needs met if it would be like, um, uh, you know, when I went to Italy, I was doing my whole clinic through an interpreter because I don't speak Italian and many of the Italians did not speak English. And it was a very interesting thing to do <laughs> because uh, there was a delay with everything, right? Like I'd say something and then the interpreter would say it. And then if someone had a question, they had to tell it to the interpreter and then the interpreter would tell it to me. The interpreter became my lifeline. What if there were no interpreter? Yeah, I love that. That's a good point. Dogs don't have an interpreter. and and They don't. And so they're at the whim of however that person um, decides to interpret it, if the dog doesn't have an interpreter and the human isn't interested in learning about the dog's body language, or worse yet, they think they already know. And how much body language do you think we get from a dog? Like how much of our language do you think a dog understands out of the box? A dog understanding our body language. Uh, our language, verbal or body language, how much out of the box do they, they know? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think they're really tolerant, but I don't think they know a ton. Mm-hmm. I And I base this on observation of when I bring a puppy home and the first time I say no in a nasty tone of voice, they just continue pissing on the floor. They don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't know what that mm-hmm. means. They don't know anything about that. Mm-hmm. Right? So those those um, things are learned for experience. Those are experiential learning. Um so let's switch that. Um, if you were thrown into um, a feral dog pack, naked and alone, with string and matches, <laughs> what 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 would you know about dog body language? Well, I would I would like to think that I understand enough dog body language to survive, but uh, maybe most people uh-huh, wouldn't. But that's not a hundred. That's far from a hundred percent. Oh, certainly not. Certainly not. And you know, one of the yeah. things that's cool yeah. about your book, Brenda, is you know, even as someone that is experienced in dog body language, when you read f- through it, 
there are things that you might never have thought of, you know, like um, the way that the tongue is positioned, you know, if, um, I can't remember the exact term you use for it, but um, like the way that the tongue sits can indicate stress and all that. Whether it's curled up uh, or curled right. down or out the front of the mouth or out of the side of the mouth. That and I think thing. this is one of the keys with dog body language that I always try and explain to people that ask me about this kind of stuff. Um, I feel like, for me at least, my the way that I learned dog body language was f- like looking through DVDs, books, that kind of stuff, and and getting a little bit of it, but I, it didn't really resonate until I actually started watching dogs, and I kind of learned so much of dog body language through just practical being around dogs. And sometimes, for me at least, I find it hard when someone says, well, how did you know the dog was going to do that? You know, or what are you watching? And it's like, you know... It's hard for me to explain it. And it reminds me actually of something that Tim Ferriss has said before when he's talking about learning a skill. He said when he wants to go and learn a skill, he doesn't go to the person that is the best in the world. He goes to the person that has just recently learned it because the people that are. Oh, he's a smart man. (laughs) That's really smart. It really is smart because the more we've internalized, the more difficult it is to externalize that for someone else. Yeah, that's certainly much. And it's why actually here at home, my girls kicked me out of puppy class. They're like, you have to stop. You're making the people's eyes roll around in their heads. <laughs> You're not always very patient with them. You need to go away. Yeah. So they teach my puppy classes now. And this is my own instructors kind of recognizing that I don't relate well to beginners anymore. Uh-huh. And I would say they're absolutely right. I can do it, but it's a task for me. Yeah. Yeah, well, and tiring. It, it it gets tiring actually to have to fill in all those blanks for them. Yeah, well, I, I feel it's, that it's best done by people that like to do mm, that. Actually, I feel that dog body language, perhaps more than any dog subject, is hard to explain because so much of it is observed. You know, so much of it is learned through just watching dogs. Mm-hmm. Well, it's your experience. And you do have to watch dogs. I mean, I ran a boarding kennel for 10 years, and I had between 20 and 60 dogs a day here. I learned a lot of it there. Same Uh, as me. You know, I I, I was just around dogs for hours and hours and hours and hours. And so how do you – I mean, you know, you're you're an author on this subject. You teach workshops and stuff. How do you go about conveying this information to people in a way that they can then observe it themselves? I think starting with still photographs is the best way, especially if you have series of still photographs because you can show the changes in commissure or the ear flicks or, or whatever. Um, then I think you need to graduate them to film where it's happening a lot quicker. So a lot of times what I'll do is I'll have some um, film and I'll pull stills from it and I'll show them the stills, then I'll show them the film. What I like to do is show them the film and then show them the stills because then they can really see how much they missed. And then look at the film again because dog language is quick and can be extremely subtle. And most of the time when I hear people talking about dog body language, they're talking about these really gross signals. So it was actually Trisha McConnell years and years and years ago. We were doing a, a, a clinic uh, and we were at the, the same venue. Um, it was uh, like a um, – an organization had had three or four people there or whatever. And she came up to me afterwards and she said, you're talking about micro signals. And I said, oh, well, thanks for putting a name to that. And, you know, we chatted a little bit. But he walked away thinking, I guess I wouldn't have called – I wouldn't have known those were micro signals. Do you know what I'm saying? I wouldn't have thought of them as micro signals. I thought that was just the language. That <laughs> yeah, because people because only observe the more – obvious or intense signals if they observe right. anything and at they all. they want the ear flick. Yeah, they want the ear flick to mean one thing. It doesn't mean one thing. The ear flick can mean a lot of well, things. 
So if the dog is, is um, let's say I have a dog in mm-hmm. front position, right? They're sitting in front of me looking at me like a competition um, thing. And we're working distraction work, mm-hmm. let's say, because this is, to me, an easy example to use. So as I'm bouncing a ball or whatever, at whatever distance we've decided the dog can still use as a success rate, blah, blah, blah. We're not exceeding any thresholds. How do I know that I'm exceeding a threshold? The dog will flick his ear. He'll flick his ear towards me. Mm-hmm. And if he has to glance at me, to me, that's a huge growth signal. Like, that's a huge signal. That's a threshold already exceeded. Mm-hmm. So if you're working like that, you need to approximate such that you can, you can keep it between those two thresholds. And exceeding a threshold past that glance is to make the dog so uncomfortable that I don't know that you're accomplishing what you want to. Now your work is becoming aversive, and that's not what you want it to become. Yeah, that's so interesting because it reminds me of what Kay Lawrence said when she was talking about how important it is to understand body language in order to set criteria when you're shaping. Exactly. If you can't read the body language to set criteria when shaping, you're screwed <laughs> because you're, you're going to keep exceeding thresholds. And so you take the dog past that good point of learning. You know, there's a sweet spot. So this is a, a term I've borrowed from a dressage friend. It's a, a friend here in um, the States, and she does something called dressage naturally. And her name is Karen Rolfe, and she's she's phenomenal. She has some great essays on animal horse training, but they, it applies to all of us, right? It's, it's pretty cool stuff. And uh, she calls it the sweet spot. And the sweet spot is where, on a horse, balance, a relaxation, and sort of a, a positive tension for working, you know, are all sitting there in the right place, an energy level. And this becomes particularly important when we are shaping, because I see some dogs in the shaping process starting to pass from a learning state into a state of arousal over the food or into a state of discomfort or confusion because they're getting left behind on the approximation like overshadowing and if you, is that what you mean yeah well um yeah overshadowing could be one of those things blocking can also be present mm-hmm. right so do we need to define those terms for your listeners uh well i i think of overshadowing when the reinforcement that you're using is so salient so valuable to the dog that they really struggle to concentrate on like you said approximations that's how i think of overshadowing yeah so overshadowing and blocking i haven't heard that term blocking oh okay so overshadowing and blocking are both terms from the scientific world in which you're presenting more than one thing at a time. So let's just take, for example, I've got a new puppy and I have a treat in my hand and I'm saying, sit, and I'm moving the treat up in front of his nose and then up to get him Mm -hmm. to sit. What's salient to the dog? Right. We actually don't know, do we? It could be the Uh motion. My predatory dogs, the Uh motion would have been even more salient than the food. The food could be overshadowing Uh um, everything. And the person's saying sit at the same time. So later the person says sit and the dog doesn't do it. And they're like, well, he's just not behaving. Mm-hmm. Well, no, he never knew that sit was with that position because something else was salient. So technically overshadowing has to do with presenting more than one um, thing at a time, more than one item. Stimulus, I think, would be the technical mm-hmm. word at a time. And so the dog, you, you and the dog are never on the same page as to what's salient. Mm-hmm. And then blocking, the easiest way to remember blocking is when old learning is blocking new learning. Mm -hmm. I have a certain idea about this and your idea is different. So when we try to talk about it, the first thing you have to do is get over your own idea to see what mine is. And and the same thing happens in dog conversations. That's interesting. So like previous learning history or like almost like cognitive dissonance, right, in people. Mm, yeah, I think that could probably apply for dogs. As you say, if I have an extensive reinforcement history already sort of built up around whatever this cue is, whether it's intentional by you or something the environment is mm-hmm. providing, and you want to try to change what that cue means, that's a that's just a bloody task, eh? Yeah, absolutely. It's called behavior modification. Yeah, that's a- 
And it's yeah, hard. Yeah, I know. I have to do it almost every day. <laughs> exactly. So what, one thing, can, so I ask, can I deviate here? I really want to ask you this question because it's been on my mind for years. <laughs> All right. And you're the person to answer. No pressure. <laughs> Thanks. With this whole dog, dog body language stuff, right? Are dogs doing it purposefully to communicate with us? Or are they just going about their business and the body language is a byproduct of that? For example, when, when well, I, I when I'm, when I'm going about my daily business, never am I thinking I have to position myself in a certain way in order to communicate this and this and this, or very, very rarely. Yeah. So I'm wondering yeah, right. if it's really a cognitive thing in the dogs or if it's just a sign, signs of, um, their emotional state or what, however you want to label it. Right. But it's not a cognitive, I'm going to put my ears up now and et cetera, et cetera. Unless it's something that is being learned through shaping or some other kind of training. Yeah. So anecdotally, I'll tell you both scientifically, I got no idea. You need somebody way smarter than I am to answer the question. I believe I see dogs using signals very deliberately. If a dog is using um, a distance increasing signal, I think sometimes they're quite aware of what it is. So let's say my dog has a bone and the other dog comes up and the dog with the bone doesn't want the other dog to have it. They weren't just signaling signaling, signaling. Nobody can have the bone. Nobody. But when the dog comes up, they might look directly at that dog or look directly away from that dog and take on a resource guarding posture. That feels more deliberate to me because otherwise it should have been present in even if proximity by an intruder wasn't present. Yeah, I see what you're saying and I can to totally but see that. maybe it's just because they only feel threatened as the proximity decreases mm -hmm. and so that brings it on. I don't know. Some of it looks pretty deliberate to me and a lot of it looks to be, as you say, just walking through daily life. Yeah, that's fascinating to me and, and do you know what? I've never even thought about that and you're totally right. You know, when you see some dogs that are resource guarding, it does sometimes seem very like a deliberate thing or like a... Um, like, I can't remember the technical term for it, but like a space increasing behavior, right? Like move away from me. Yep, yep. And it seems like, yep. but that could potentially almost, although no one's intentionally trained it, it is, I wonder if that is really a learned behavior as opposed to. Mm. Well, dogs come with language, right? And we can see, and again, this is all anecdotal. Remember, I'm not a very smart person. I've just done this a long time. Um, so let us say I have a puppy with a normal mother, normal siblings. He gets, he gets, he gets to stay with his mother and siblings for a full 10 to 12 weeks. So he's past any sensitive, you know, that first sensitive fear period, blah, blah, blah. And let's take a look at the way that dog handles other dogs with his body language. It is really sophisticated and it's, uh, effective and it is in my book the highest of compliments appropriate like the dog uses body language that matches the situation and other dogs love this because then it's like it's like us depending on culture it's like um it's like us depending on each other to be relatively polite to each other when we talk you know if we're if we couldn't count on that who would you ever start a conversation or would you just avoid conversation? So dogs love this appropriateness. It's a, we would call it etiquette and manners. And, and I feel like there is definitely something there when a dog gets to take advantage of social development periods properly. We get dogs that are amazing. You know, that's a beautiful that. point because what that kind of illustrates to me is if this behavior was purely you know, just they're born with it, right? They're born with this ability to have the body language they have, then we would just see dogs that were just equally good at social body language, right? So at least yes. in part, um, that is through uh, reinforcement learning. and learning, yeah. So I feel like all that stuff gets installed. 
like it's your computer. And so you get your new computer and it's got, you know, I have Macintoshes. So it's got pages and it's got some kind of um, keynote so to make programs on or um, presentations on. And it's got some kind of spreadsheet that I don't know how to use and it comes with it. But let's say, um, so here's a case history. I had a puppy uh, dropped off at the pound with siblings at five weeks old. Um, and it's a very big sort of animal hell pound due to numbers, volume. Um, I see the puppy the first time at 12 weeks of age. And here's the thing. He's got all the body language stuff is there, like, the threat behavior is there, the friendly behavior is there, the neutral behavior is there, but he pulls it out and uses it really weirdly. So you reach down to pet him, and the first thing he does is go right up at your face and your jugular and muzzle and, and trying to do a muzzle punch behavior. Mm-hmm. And if you prevent him from doing that by hanging onto his collar so he doesn't break your nose, um, he ups his threat behavior. But then... If the threat behavior doesn't work and you don't go away, all of a sudden he'll go into puppy licking, mm-hmm. which can look like muzzle punching, but the posture is a little bit different and the intent is certainly different and there's less body tension mm-hmm. and there's a softness in the body and a softness in the shape of the eyes. Uh, but then if he stays there too long and then actually just when you feel him start to relax about the petting, His brain says, we're not relaxed with petting. I don't know why we feel like this. It feels good but strange. It's out of my routine. So I'm going to muzzle punch Mm -hmm. again. So it's like this dog has all the pieces of body language installed, but he's like cycling through them as if he doesn't know how to use Mm -hmm. them. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, you know, it reminds me of um, like when young animals play, a lot of the times – the one of the theories I've heard is they're almost practicing skills like hunting skills and all that kind of fighting skills and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And it's it's yep. almost a bit like that. It seems like what you're getting at, right? Like, and it's cute when they're puppies, right? Because <laughs> it so looks not serious. Yeah, sure. Right? Like, there's they're not taking themselves seriously, but it but that's a great way to bring it up because it's like they're pulling out all these behaviors that seem to be in there. And they're figuring out, how do I put this into a context? Mm-hmm. What context mm-hmm. do I use it? So it seems to me like some of it is pretty instinctive, but there, I think, are great portions of it that feel to me that need good examples for learning. Because one of the things that I've seen is, well, I don't even know if I've seen it as much of, I'm not sure where it entered my brain, but this idea of... um calming signals versus signs of stress and it's almost like they seem to be two combating ideas right is the dog deliberately doing this behavior to attempt to calm something else or someone else or whatever it is or is the dog just stressed and those are the behaviors that go along with a stressed dog um well i think they can be both i think I think that – so let's say a dog starts to sniff. Well, I'll just try to put something contextually. So let's say the dog starts to sniff, and we, we observe this dog, and we say, why is he sniffing? Is he uncomfortable with the environment? Is he trying to show me he's not threatening me currently? Um, is he thinking, you know, a lot of dogs will do this quick three or four seconds of sniffing when they're trying to collect their brain, when they're doing what I would call coming from a hind brain or a more non, non, um, thinking instinctive state into a more front brained, you know, sort of thinking state. Um, so when we look at what the dog is doing and we start looking at the context, if we have enough experience, we can start to say, well, I think it's this or I think it's that. And in reality, do any of us know? <laughs> you know, the dogs are the ones that really know the answers and they're not telling so them. So a bit to like us. before is a case of both probably exist and, you know, it's a case of. I think yeah. so. And I don't know. I don't know if I always know if it's deliberate mm-hmm. or not. 
What I can tell you is sometimes I seem to be observing something that makes me think it is deliberate. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But boy, sometimes it sure feels super, super. Like I can tell, for instance, if I have a dog standing there and he's kind of looking around and another dog enters and he either looks directly at that dog or looks directly away from that dog and then he starts sniffing. That feels like a very deliberate message to me. Hey, you, I'm not threatening you right now. Right. Uh-huh. But uh, or hey you your your attitude makes me feel a little uncomfortable mm-hmm. so I just want to make sure you know I'm not threatening you or hey you I don't I don't like your attitude so I'm going to comfort myself so it could be a vacuum activity too right a displacement behavior yeah the w- and maybe it's can it be all of them at once I don't know maybe yeah can. the only thing that kind of I hesitate on there is you know how many times has someone have you caught eye contact with someone and you immediately look away without even deliberately doing that? Right. It's like, that is that a displacement behavior? Like probably, but it's not like a conscious decision. Well, it depends on what the look away looks like. Don't you think if it looks like a knee jerk reaction, that's really different than it's slower or deliberate or the dog is blinking while they're doing it. Hmm. Yeah. Blinking to me is a sign of what I would call a thinking state. It's very hard to ascribe intent, isn't it? It's very hard to decide, is it intentional or not? And I guess it's a little bit like the discussion on dog emotions, you know. It's very hard to prove if a dog is feeling a particular emotion. Um, we just kind of base it as much as we can on what we do know. Well, I think what we, what those of us who observe dogs a lot, So when I was trying to teach myself body language, I quickly got overwhelmed. So I thought I need to do this in a way that has some pattern to it so my brain can start to recognize a pattern instead of feeling overwhelmed. So I decided like one week I was going to study yawning. So when I took the play groups of dogs out, all I did was studied yawning. Like I, I noted the other stuff that was going on, but I'm like, oh, that dog yawned. What happened just before he yawned? What happened just after he yawned? you can then start to come to some conclusions about maybe what cued or promoted or caused the yawn to happen, however you need to think about that or word it, and um, what what his intent was by what happened after. Do you think that that's the most efficient way of learning dog body language thoroughly? Is that what you would recommend to other dog trainers? I have absolutely no idea. It worked okay for me. Okay. How about teaching dog owners, you know, because that's obviously an important part in changing how successful people are living with dogs. What's what? I think what we concentrate on class is if it is a, even if it is a group class, whenever we see dogs doing something, we point it out to their owners. Look, your dog just like yawned and looked away. Um, because he looked away directly from that dog, I think it's safe to say that he was directing that at that dog, or at least we could say that dog made him uncomfortable. Um, it's why we work so hard on eye contact on us. If the dog's default is eye contact on the human, where they put their eyes when their eyes are off us starts to become a lot more meaningful to us. It's something we can pick out a little bit easier. Does that make sense? I mean, if you have, if that's not like, in how you work a dog, I think it's uh, more difficult to understand. But that is how we work dogs here. Um, I do it for very specific reasons. And it works really good for me. So my shepherd, who came to me with both human and dog aggression, um, and was trained totally positively, by the way, pretty much, um, she, if she looked away from me, I already felt like that was a red flag. And if she did more than glance away from me, it was definitely a red flag. So if she looked away from me, but her eyes kept moving, she was blinking and her nose was moving back and forth or her eyebrows were moving, uh, because that's something you can tell from behind the dog, then she was just looking at the environment. But it had to be very careful. If it was scan, come back to me, scan, come back to me, that was okay. But as soon as it wasn't a quick scan or a quick glance, it was going into what I would call alert behavior. So alert behavior is when the scan, that is, it's not a scan, it's fixed on something. And if, if the gaze 
or the nose stays oriented towards something for a count of one, two, three, it's already target. She'd already picked out her victim. Four dogs like that, by the time they target, intervening is already going to be difficult. Right, right. For people that are just at the beginning of their journeys, do you, what, you know, obviously I've got your book here. It's a big book, right? There's a lot to learn when it comes to dog body language. If people are just starting out, what should they prioritize? What are the most important things that they get down early on that they become proficient in recognizing? Everything. Um, that's the short answer. Uh, because we have to approximate, we have to break things down for people to learn it. Um, I think the easiest thing for people to first identify or uh, one of the most important things for them to sort out is when is the dog looking at them and when is the dog not looking at them? That's that's the first thing, right? Because if my dog is looking at me, they're thinking about me. And if they're not looking at me, I can tell you right now, they're not thinking about me. They're, they're pretty black and white about those things. And we don't want to recognize it like that. So, for instance, let's say my shepherd who had dog and human aggression things cooking and I showed her and put put um, obedience title on her. Um, so I had to be very careful when I had her out in public, right? So whether her eyes were on me or off me had a lot to do with what she was thinking about. And is if, if you could just recognize that, you're way ahead of most people. People like to think the dog is just looking because they're curious. I don't necessarily think that's true. I think a dog like Mavie was looking for a victim. Like she was perpetually looking for a victim. And my fox terrier, Brianna, she was always looking for a victim because she liked to kill things. Both of those dogs liked the bite. They wanted the bite. Mm. Um, it made them feel good. And I think people not recognizing some really basic fundamental things. Now, I'm not saying it would biting makes all dogs feel good. We know from watching people do Schutzender IPO work, whatever it's called over there, um, that some dogs bite out of defense and some dogs bite out of I like it. Right. Right. And you can tell by the way the dog bites, how they hold and what their body language is immediately after the bite, even if it's a full mouth bite and a good hold. Uh, some of the defensive dogs come off and they're like a little like, oh, right? Whereas um, a really bold dog that wants the bite will actually look ex super excited before the bite mm -hmm. and really happy after the bite. Uh, things that we could observe as happiness, like actually sort of a lack of body tension. There, there will be a relative relaxation present. Um, the, the kind of relaxation an Olympic athlete that is ready to go to work has. Does that, well, when I say a relative relaxation? With some breeds, like biting gives off those feel-good kind of um, endorphins, doesn't it? And and Yeah, I think it's also a lack of impulse control. Like terriers, people find terriers difficult to train because we have bred them to do a specific job. And that job really involves a serious lack of impulse control. And if that is not present, they won't do their job. Yeah. Well, my friend so, Jane Arden talks about, because she runs uh, predatory workshops, and she would talks about how awesome. some breeds are just by their nature going to be more difficult than others because the pieces of... the Essentially what it is is um, some breeds have been bred to be interrupted and some breeds have been bred yes. not to be interrupted. Yes. <laughs> right? so, yes. So we're talking about the same thing, just using a different word, impulse right. control. Right. So there is never you, – you don't train terriers to stop killing the rat halfway through, right? Whereas with no. like a, a spaniel, you want them to – maybe you're going to have to stop them on the stop whistle. Or, you, you know, there's there's much more control in what they've been bred for. Right, like border collies. Hopefully, so let's just say this is a this is a really simplistic predatory sequence. But you have, um, you know, I. So I would call the I the alert target phase, and then you have the stalk phase, then you have the chase, then you have the grab bite, then you have the kill bite, then you have the dissect. So border collies. Hopefully, we stop them, like with a little teeny wee grab bite. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes they'll grip a sheep. Um, if it, if the sheep is really recalcitrant or if a, 
the only time my ever my dog ever gripped a sheep is when a, when a sheep came after me, and she would grip them then. The rest of the time, she just used her eye. But having an understanding of my terrier was bred through dissect, and my border collie was stopped at the very beginning of a grab bite. Mm. Yeah. How, how, and so I think that's the same thing you're right, talking yeah. about. Yeah, different parts of that predatory sequence that all that dogs go through and different dogs have been bred for different parts of that sequence with yes. um yep. with body language you find that it varies a lot between breeds um especially oh, i would say no but i think other people would not say no so let me think about that a second all right so a stalk is a stalk to mm-hmm. me but it can look like a border collie stock, low to the ground, eh? Or it can look like um, an upland game point. So I think people would say those look very different topography-wise. To me, they're the same thing because they're the same thing. The topography doesn't matter as much. But I think when people are trying to learn body language, I would be very confusing there. Do you think that some breeds, because of their structure maybe rely on different aspects of their behavior so for example if a dog has a curly tail then it's not going to maybe have as much ability to communicate with that tail and it might rely more upon a different signal or a dog that has a flatter face might maybe have less mobility in its face and might therefore start to learn and rely upon other behaviors i think that that is highly individualized. I think what the dog does and what we see. Um, so the dog with the flat face might do the same thing, but we don't. It's harder for us to see it. Does that make any sense? Whatsoever? Yeah, it does. But oh, I guess um, because earlier we were talking about, you know, dogs, maybe they have a lot of this body language installed, you said, but um and then there's this other aspect of learning history, right? Like what is working? And I'm wondering. So I think if a, yeah, if a flat faced dog does whatever is installed, but it never works, I think they would abandon that and try something that worked. They're going to look at cause and effect. You know, whether we, whether their body language was originally deliberate or not deliberate. They're going to look at cause and effect. And if you say they're looking at cause and effect and they're finding out this works versus this doesn't work, then they are going to graduate to what works or they're going to slide towards that or veer towards that direction. In which case, you know, that's a little bit more fuel for I do think some of it is deliberate. Um, If you call learning something and then using it deliberate use yeah do you approach it differently with certain breeds you know i've spoken to plenty of dog trainers that maybe they have one breed that they hate working with because they really struggle to read them you know i hear people say things like that a lot about breeds like akitas um or even malamutes um do you you approach those kind of dogs differently where maybe they do have less mobility or they they seem to present in a slightly different way or is that maybe just all in people's own biases i don't think they necessarily present oh see there again like i'm going so much by the body tension of the dog rather than oh he flicked his ear slightly to the left people are very hung up on i want this thing to mean Mm. that so that they can categorize it. It's, it's part of how humans learn. We want to put things in categories and, and kind of tie them up with a nice, neat bow. And I think body language doesn't really fit into that. Um, really, it doesn't feel like it fits until you know it really well. Like to me, it fits really well. But I think when you're beginning to try to understand it, it feels like because people say, well, look, he just did that. What does it mean? And I'm like, well, it could mean these 10 things. So now let's look at the context and and sort our way through it so that you can learn how to, because don't you, the location and context is everything to dogs. I mean, look how difficult it can be to get them to generalize. Yeah, I have two points on that. So do you think that it's just an experience that people say those things about certain breeds? You know, hard for me to know. Here's what I do know, that certain breeds... Or I would actually categorize that differently. I would say certain individual dogs. 
So really confident dogs often don't go through what we would call a storybook. I stop, target, change and comma short, change in the ears and tail, um, full defensive display. You know, a lot of dogs go from looking at it to bark lunging. So I think a portion of that is learned. You know, maybe the dog had more of a storybook display at one time, but they learned that nobody saw that, everybody ignored it, but they, they really did get results if they did a bark lunge. So they start going from the look to the bark lunge. Right. So that's a defensive dog. It's kind of a learning process. But if you have a really confident dog, and I'm going to bring up a word, who is very confident in their status – they're confident that they can. I know. They're confident that if they do this, there will be a definite outcome. Okay? So they skip the threat behavior because they don't feel like it should be necessary. Or if they feel like, I do feel like dogs have this really good sense about what's rude and what's not rude. An invasion of space is rude, period. We screw that body language up in dogs by letting them jump on us and then petting them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we wonder why they give us grief in so many other areas. We encourage them to be rude there. And then in other places where we don't want them to be rude, then we get upset about it. You know, that's that's confusing for dogs. And it, I think to some degree screws up their body language. But dogs like my shepherd, if she was going to correct another dog, she didn't do some big, huge display. She gave them a slight glance, and then she rolled them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and pinned them and said, listen, you should know better. And she got a lot of, I'm going to use another abstract word, respect uh -huh. Uh -huh. <clears throat> from the other dogs. They didn't violate her space uh -huh. because they knew there was a consequence to it, and they also knew that she was expecting them to watch their behavior. And if they did not watch their behavior, then she was going to give them a consequence that made them do that in the future. Yeah, it's a, I know that sounds like I'm putting a lot of cognizance on dogs, uh -huh. but dogs are they're not brilliant like humans are, but they're emotionally and language wise pretty brilliant mm -hmm. most of them. If they if they get any kind of normal interaction with other dogs. Mm -hmm. So for the dog <clears throat> trainers that are listening do you think that that is the key takeaway point that people should, um, in their coaching, especially in classes on one-to-ones and all this kind of stuff, be pointing out the behavior of the dog so that people can start to pick up on this body language and maybe that's a huge part of the route to uh, getting more dogs in homes and less dogs going to rescue centers? Yeah, as long as they know what they're talking about. And how do they know what they're talking about? How do they go through that process? Oh, that's not my job. That's way above my pay. Well, you've you've wrote a book, which is probably a good start. <laughs> well, read that. Start there. Um, you know, one thing that I help, I think, helps people learn how to read dogs very well is shelter work. If you're working with highly stressed dogs, um, many of them who maybe did not have great opportunities to learn about and understand language between dogs and humans, or dogs and dogs, depending on their background. Um, there's a great place to go just interact and observe. If you go with a clinical detachment, it will work better. And I think maybe that's one of the key things that people should know. When I'm observing dogs, it's one part of me is just observing them because I love dogs. And another part of me is saying, love of dogs aside, don't let that bias what is going on here. Where's your clinical detachment? Where's Pull out your inner ethologist, not your inner behaviorist. You know, behaviorists just want to change stuff. But ethologists want to just <laughs> make a tick mark. He did this, he panted, then he peed, and then he ate dinner, right? Mm -hmm. um, a behaviorist would want to change how the dog did all those things and put an emotional statement on each one of them. You know, so pull out your inner ethologist and say, um, you know, how – how how did this body language fit in? What happened before? What happened after? And and the context. Because I think a lot of communication is pretty contextual. It, it should be contextual, right? That's what we would call appropriate. Is it's based on, it's not like you ask me a question about, did you, you know, did you 
walk to school or carry your lunch and I say, yeah, crows and dinosaurs, you're expecting an answer back that's relevant to the conversation we're having. Mm -hmm. Dogs are expecting the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, when they signal, even if it's what we would call, like you would call a, a you, whatever, a, a knee jerk um, signal, like they weren't aware. They, it was just body language. But even with that, they're expecting some sort of understanding, I think, on our part of what's going on for them, right? Right. They're expecting to have a conversation with mm -hmm. us in which the topic is relevant. Mm -hmm. That when they make a statement, my reply is about that topic. One thing that you said, which I really loved, was don't be too disappointed when people are not ready to take your advice. Maybe you have to begin with just planting the seed and being content that it is planted. And then it might have a chance to grow. Right? Like I Absolutely. Because we can't remember all humans come to us with blocking intact. Right. I really loved that quote and I wanted to kind of point that out so for people that are hopefully we have planted a seed of wanting to learn more about dog body language where can they do that and where can they find out more about you as well um, my website is www.brendaaloff.com um, I gotta keep it easy because as you learned here I'm none too bright um, I, obviously I have a book canine body language um, I would love to get an online class going. It's certainly, I've planted that seed in my own brain, but bringing that to fruition is a tough one. Uh, but I would like to do that. I've got, I've got about 3000 film clips collected. Wow. So just categorizing them is going to take me a minute. Um, but, uh, Sue Sternberg here in the States, if you go to her, her, her website, um, she has some good body language stuff. Sue Sternberg also has some really good DVDs on body language. Um, I trust her reading of a dog. She reads a dog more similarly to, than I, you know, to what I, you know, when I talk to her or when I look at her stuff, I know what she's saying and I understand it and I understand it the same way. Um, so um, she has some lovely things too. Well, thanks so much for coming on and teaching people about dog body language. I really appreciate it, Brenda. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you also, Nick. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. That was a really cool one. Really interesting to talk to Brenda. Don't forget to join us over on the Facebook podcast discussion group. Just search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. That's where we chat about the podcast and all the things that kind of go on around it. Uh, if you haven't already, then leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform um, you're on or you can, because I know that some of them are a bit restrictive. And of course, the show notes, as always, are at nickbenger.com slash Brenda hyphen Aloff. And if uh one more thing you know if you do want some more help with the coaching calls um you do want some help just getting a lot of it is just confidence you know a lot of people are really struggling out there with their confidence maybe you've just became a dog trainer or you're just kind of on your path to that and you are struggling to feel confident and get the and feel like you're on the right path and you're and you're accumulating the knowledge to be able to do one-to-one -one sessions and classes and all of that kind of stuff. Um, we can have a really good chat about that and I can point you in the right direction. I can talk to you about techniques. I can talk to you about methods. Um, and we can just kind of geek out a little bit. And to do that, just go to nickbenger.com slash book. See you guys.